going to ask that you keep your Bible open to Matthew 19 if you're following along, and certainly find it if you weren't. And I want to begin with a story this morning as we talk about love and money. The story is this. It's of a young man somewhere between the ages of 18 and 20. His parents had passed away. They were a, a family of believers. They went to church regularly. Uh, and when his parents passed away, he was then left to tend the estate, everything that their family had, including his significantly younger sister. And now he was in charge. He's trying to figure out what life holds for him. And over the next six months, as they go to church, finally, he hears these words of Jesus one Sunday, where Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give them to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And he takes Jesus at his word, liquidates the estate, saves money for his sister, puts her in the care of a convent of nuns and goes off and becomes one of the most famous monks ever in Christian history. Interestingly, it affects all of us today. I don't want to get into all that because we could, and you can ask me about it later. But what's interesting about it is he took Jesus very clearly at his word here, at face value. If you would be perfect, go sell your possessions and give them to the poor. As we read those words, they come across very powerfully, and they're very prescriptive for this rich man, but we want to understand what's behind the words because I would suggest that that's not the antidote for all of us for the problem that Jesus is addressing. I'm not going to preach this morning that you need to do exactly that because I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is telling us, that all of us in this room need to sell our possessions and be done with it. But Jesus is addressing something important behind that, that he's uh, diagnosing for this young man with those important words. The real simple thing Jesus is saying that we want to get into this morning is wealth or God, which do you love more? He zeroed in on it for the rich man. He understood that that was the thing, and he said, here's the diagnosis for that. Go sell your possessions. I can diagnose that. And so the question this morning is, is a bit of a test of that for us. Which do you love more, wealth or God, as we move forward? And over the next three weeks, we're talking about generosity. That's our theme. Um, and we want to recognize that God has given us so much. God has given us life. We don't deserve it. God gave it to us. God has given us this day. We sometimes say it tritely. This is the day the Lord has made. But God gave it to us. We didn't deserve it. That was a generous act of God. God has given us love. God has given us forgiveness. He's given us relationship, not just with one another, but with the living God of the universe and so much more. And we're created in the image of God to take on his character. And God is a generous God. That's in his character. Is it in yours? Is the question we ask over the next three weeks. And so I want to make a distinction today between some words that we commonly use in church. Uh, we heard a, a great presentation from finance team, and this fits right in with that of when we ask the questions of stewardship and generosity. I want to kind of give definition to those because we're talking about generosity over the next few weeks, not specifically stewardship, but they go together. And we have to understand the relationship between the two before we move on. So stewardship, uh, an, a definition that I think is useful would be the careful use, control, and management of the possessions of another that have been entrusted to someone. Or more specifically in our case, 
uh, used to refer to the responsible use of wealth and possession by Christians. So those of us who believe that God is the giver of all good things, uh, then we have to steward those gifts well. The, the verse I would typically point back to in understanding stewardship is Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It already belongs to God. That which we have, that which we possess, whether it's in our bank account, our house, my own children, they're all gifts from God that I get to steward in this lifetime and in different ways. You see it right in the beginning of Scripture with Adam and Eve, where the first, uh, uh, first thing that God charged them with is to be fruitful and multiply, and then he says also now take care of this thing I've created, and then he gives them a task. Name it all so you know how to take care of it. What a, what a, a massive amount of responsibility, but God trusts them with that. They're to take care of, to steward. The language specifically is out of an ambassador doing the bidding of the king or the will of the king. So that's stewardship. You also see that with Joseph in Egypt when he becomes second in command of Pharaoh and he has to store up the food in advance of a famine. That's stewardship. Here are the resources. Put those in the savings account, basically, to take care of them and use them rightly. Contrast that with a closely related concept of generosity, and we recognize they're not the same thing, but they are related. It's the free and liberal bestowal of wealth, possessions, or food upon others. And, and you can see that the generosity of God then is expressed very clearly in Jesus Christ, actually, to those of us who don't deserve it, sinners. You can see this clearly in the way that the church operates early on, Acts chapter 2, where they uh, give and share possessions, and they're giving to take care of those, who, anyone who has need. You can see that not just in individual, in the Jerusalem church, but in the churches, the early churches, as Paul goes around and gathers a collection for the Jerusalem church when they go through a famine. He specifically cites Macedonia and Achaia, for instance, in Romans, uh, but they're not the only ones that give and help other churches. So when we talk about tithing as a church, that's what they were essentially doing, giving to help other churches function. That's generosity. So they're, they're rightly using the gifts that they've been given, the wealth that they have, the possessions, but they're also giving of those things, not just storing those things. And they work together. You can see then, a negative way that stewardship is used, Jesus speaks of this in the parable of the talents, where he talks about the owner who leaves and he gives five talents, or gold, just think about that way, or money, five talents to one servant, two to another, and one to another. And when he returns, the one with five and the one with two have doubled it. And he says, good job, you get more responsibility, well done, good and faithful servant. And the one that had one buried it. I was afraid you were a ruthless man. You were not going to treat me well if I did wrong with this. So he buried it. And so that's the way that stewardship can be done incorrectly. Where, where sometimes we think we're doing right by bearing the gift, but we're not utilizing the gift. And then with generosity, you can see where that is done incorrectly. You contrast that in Acts chapter 4 and 5 with Barnabas, who sells some of his property and gives it to the church. And then that very famous and disturbing story with Ananias and Sapphira, who sell some of their property and lie about how much they're going to give to take care of the church. And really it's an issue of their not, of with, not simply withholding, but they're lying about it. They're trying to look generous when they're not. So we can do wrong and we can do right in both of these categories, but the bottom line to understand how these work together 
is that stewardship without generosity does not honor God. And generosity without stewardship squanders what God has given. So they go together, but we're speaking specifically of generosity over these next few weeks. The bestowal of that which God has given us, often undeserved to others. So let's go to the text so we can look at this rich man and his interaction with Jesus. In Matthew 19, starting at verse 16, we heard the text this morning. We won't go over the whole thing. We'll just pick out a couple spots. It says, Just then a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus then responds, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And I don't know if the question fascinates you at all. I find it interesting what good thing must I do to enter eternal life? I find it interesting because I don't, I think, only half of the question we would tend to ask in our day and age. We do want to know about what's good. I don't find as many people interested in eternal life. We should be. I don't find as many people interested in that side of it. But let's start with the eternal life piece of that. Most likely, uh, with this man, you have uh, a Pharisee. It doesn't say he is, but he fits the bill of someone who would be a Pharisee, both of the, the wealth potential and his interest in keeping the law. And you have then a people group who were very interested in keeping the law and especially eternal life. They really wanted to know, how do I enter this thing? That was a constant thought for them. The idea of eternal life gets us into to issues of transcendence, if you simply apply transcendence to the character of God, it's an important thing to recognize that God is above and beyond creation. That's really what that points to. God's not a created thing. God is beyond it. God is above it, but God created us and everything in creation. And then we, we can begin to connect this to that which is good and Jesus' answer of keeping the commandments because the law was given, those commandments were given so that someone like humans could actually uh, have communion with a transcendent God, a God who is above and outside of that creation. And more importantly, the law was the, the way to practice in this life entering into eternal life. It's the way to develop the virtue necessary to actually be godly and have godly character. That's why God gave it. This transcendent God who is above and outside of creation but created it all and wants us in relationship. That's what Jesus is pointing to, and the Pharisee gets that. He's getting that. The rich man does. When we talk about the issue of goodness, then, we're entering into that. We are talking about the issue of virtue, morality, if you want to put it that way, that which is virtuous, and virtue works from the inside out. You can look virtuous, but to actually be virtuous, it's got to be an inner character, not simply outworkings of things. And so Jesus points out, in this interaction, he says, okay, obey the commandments. You go to verse 18. The man rightly asks, which ones? And Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you look at that list, he's pointing back to the Ten Commandments. As he points back to those commandments... 
look through that list, except for the last one. Let's not go to the last one yet, which is actually not in the Ten Commandments specifically. Not all of them require virtue to be practiced. You could do them without having the inner work. You could do them with the wrong motivation and still look virtuous. A person may not murder, not because they don't have the desire in their heart, but because they recognize the consequences of the law, and they say, well, I don't want those consequences. But as Jesus points out, we murder in our hearts sometimes. A person might not commit adultery because they recognize, okay, that might change things, but they might have already lusted in their heart and done so. They just didn't finalize the act in real life. And you can go down the list. A person might outwardly look like they're honoring their father and mother, but not actually be honoring their father and mother. They just might be doing the outward thing. So you don't have to be virtuous to do some of these things. Maybe when you get to love your neighbor as yourself, if you truly want to do that, you have to have something a little bit more. At their core, the commandments that Jesus is pointing to are instructive, and they should train the human heart how to love and walk with God. They should train the human heart in godliness, so they should work out that way. And Jesus points to the Ten Commandments with that in mind, but when he looks at the rich man, he zeroes in on the one of the Ten Commandments that it appears that this man has missed in the process. He can see it. He zeroes in on it. When I was in elementary school, I remember getting an assignment. I imagine some of you got assignments like this at one point in your life, too. You got an assignment where the teacher hands out the paper, and they, it's two-sided. They say, read all the instructions and complete the assignment. I see some heads nodding. You know what I'm talking about. And you'll see a whole classroom of 20-plus kids get this piece of paper and some will finish in 30 seconds and the rest of them are sitting there going through the whole assignment because the instructions simply say, write your name on the top, go to the last question, set down your pencil. If you don't follow the instructions, you do the whole thing. You think, well, this is an assignment, I have to do the whole thing. If you follow the instructions, you're done in a moment. It's the first thing on the page. Jesus points to the Ten Commandments. He zeroes in on the first thing that this man should have gotten but appears to have not recognized in his following the commandments. And we can go back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. The first command is this, you shall have no other gods before me. That's what Jesus zeroes in on with this man. You shall have no other gods before before me. Wonderful that you honor your father and mother. Wonderful that you don't murder. Wonderful that you don't steal. You shall have no other gods before me. I want to ask a question, tie this to a question then as we proceed on, and this comes from a, a devotional that's really quite good called Generosity by Gordon MacDonald. It's up here if you want to look at it afterwards. Didn't feel like reinventing the wheel on some questions because he asked the perfect one for this. He says, Scripture teaches us that we can't serve both God and money. How does wealth tend to capture your heart like the rich young ruler? And so we're talking about generosity 
now at this point, that wealth can capture our heart and we can bury the talent, we can use whatever analogy you want, and we're, not, we're going to withhold what God has given us for our own purposes rather than look outward with what God has given us. How does wealth tend to capture your heart like the rich young ruler? And we could just simply say this, if we want to understand something about the heart of somebody who's generous, the generous trust God. They trust God. They trust that God has their best in mind, that God is going to take care of them, that their needs will actually be, and then they have the perspective on needs versus wants, that those will be taken care of, that God will be with them no matter what happens. They trust God with what they've been given. So Jesus says these famous words to this young man in verse 21. He says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. It's not prescriptive for everybody, but if you're in the case of the rich young man, it's prescriptive all of a sudden. But Jesus is asking the question, where's your heart? Where's your heart, man? He continues on, Jesus does, and, and we see the, the man's response. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Sometimes in the Gospels we get a follow-up story to what happened. We don't with this man. We're led to believe that he probably walked away, and that's the end of the story that we get anyways. In verse 23, though, then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Let's focus on that part right there, the, the eye of the needle, the camel. Let's dispel a myth, and then let's get to the point, and then let's, I want to challenge us a little bit this morning. The myth to dispel is that, uh, that it has been preached for a few generations now and written in a few commentaries that there was a gate called the eye of the needle around Jerusalem that if you simply unloaded the camel at night when the traders came through and got them down on their knees and you could get the camel through, then you could pull the, the things from the camel through the, the eye of the needle gate and put them back on and go into the city. A couple things. There's no evidence of any such gate. You'll hear it still. You'll see it if you search online. There's no evidence of any such gate. And secondly, Jesus is playing on a phrase that had been used multiple times before him on an elephant. And there are other versions of this same thing because he's clearly saying you can't take it with you into eternity. And if you try and spin it that way, where there's no evidence to spin it that way, then you are saying, well, you can under the right circumstances take it with you. But help me here. Jesus isn't actually saying you can take it with you. You can't take the stuff that you have with you when you pass on. It is impossible to divide your trust, Jesus is saying, between wealth and God. You trust one or you trust the other. You don't trust both and don't try. And when we get back to that issue of eternal life and transcendence and that sort of thing, we can put our stuff in now things, or we can put our, stuff, our trust in God into eternity. Those are the options before us can't put the camel through the eye of the needle. Where is your heart, is what Jesus is asking. And so let's talk about how we test that, a little sort of trust exercise of if, if the generous trust God, where is our trust really? It's a very simple 
kind of way I want to go about this this morning, and we, we build on this over the next couple weeks. But let's start with a simple example. I, I encouraged you at the beginning of the service to fill out your connection card. This is not going to be a generosity example, but it gets to the heart of one of the things that sometimes blocks us from generosity. I encouraged you to fill out your connection card at the beginning of the service. I stressed this morning specifically, you may want to do it so you feel good at this part of the sermon, so I hope you did it. Because one of the things that, uh, reasons that that matters, that connection card that we do each week and that we do it all at the same time, is that uh, sometimes you'll go to churches where they say, if you're a visitor, and Stephanie and I had this when we were on sabbatical, hey, stand up if you're a visitor. Uh, that's always fun and isolating, and it's interesting. It, it happened in an okay setting for us, but uh, we don't do that here. But sometimes you'll go places and they'll say, hey, all the visitors, please fill out a little card, and nobody else has to do that, and that singles out a visitor who always already feels singled out. But if you say, everybody do this at the same time, remarkably, a lot more churches have a lot more success in capturing visitor information so we can follow up on it. But sometimes we hear something like that, and it's like, well, I don't need to do that because they already have my information in the office. But the activity may or may not specifically be just for you. It might be for the life of the whole body so that we can do a better job of being hospitable. That's why we do it that way each week. And sometimes for some of us, when we, when we haven't developed generosity deeply enough within our heart, part of it is we haven't thought about what else is going on around us where the generosity needs to be aimed. Simple enough. That's not a, a, a judgment statement. That's just we haven't thought about it sometimes. For some of us, it might be a different thing. Uh, I was influenced a few years ago by the autobiography of Richard Wormbrand, the Voice of the Martyrs founder who uh, writes about being uh, captured for being a, a Christian in Eastern Europe in the 50s. He and a number of other Christians and mercilessly tortured for believe, being believers in a communist country. And one of the things that he writes about in there is that, of course, people got very sick because they didn't get a lot of food and they were treated horribly. And he said they got uh, basically watery soup once a day, and then once a week got a piece of bread. That was their whole nourishment. And he said the weaker prisoners, they were obviously, they needed more nourishment than they were getting. And so everybody that was stronger tithed their bread once a week to the weaker prisoners to help them gain strength. That's a remarkable act of generosity, isn't it? That puts it in perspective in so many ways. For some of us, it, it is that we haven't thought deeply enough about where, where else could the stuff that I have go. For some of us, we haven't challenged ourselves or been challenged by circumstances to do more. There are all kinds of reasons that we might uh, hold on without recognizing what's going on in our own heart, but here's the, here's the way to test it this week. Some of you know exactly what you spend and how much you spend everywhere. You are budget-friendly people, and some of you have no idea where your money goes. So those of you that already know your budget, you can just gather the pieces together. And those of you that don't know your budget, put it together and figure out a thumbnail sketch of where your money goes. And I would suggest to you this. Ask the question, what does my budget say about my heart? That's the key question. What does my budget say about my heart? And then you can do a couple of things when you kind of narrow that down. And I want you to note, I'm not asking you to give a dime to First Covenant right now in thinking about this, because sometimes people hear money and the pastor gets up and he's going to ask for a whole bunch of money. 
I'm not asking for that. You can do that. We'll talk about that next week. But in a positive way. But what I would challenge you with is, is when you start to look at that, I would ask not just about the money piece, but the possession piece too and the time piece. What things have a grip on your heart? And, and for some of us, it might be really simple and seemingly innocuous, whether it's the amount of money we spend on snack food. It might have a hold on our heart without realizing it. Or the amount of time we watch Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is, and that's our habit. And for some of us, we might have to say, okay, let me just take a moment and stop that and redirect those funds in a generous manner and redirect the time in a way that can help me focus on what does God actually want from me and where is my heart? whether it's a day, a week, or a month. To get rid of a barrier to generosity in our own lives. That would be the first way, one way a person could test where their heart is. The other way is actually just, you know, giving towards something new or challenging yourself towards uh, giving towards a new thing or more than you have in the past. And again, I'm not even telling you where to direct it. Just direct it towards something that advances the kingdom of God. But Christians, uh, uh, according to the statistics right now, are giving about 2.5% of their income. Christians are giving about 2.5%. During the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. I feel like that says something about our heart. So it's, it's a good thing to make sure that we test our heart and ask what it, where our heart is when it comes to the possessions and the wealth that we have. And I know some of you in the room are incredibly generous and you've developed that and you continue to challenge yourself and develop it and you're saying, all right, I can test those things, I can do those things, but give me more. Let's do more. So let me whet your appetite for what's to come. Next week we're going to take time and we're going to take time at the end of the sermon to do a personal pledge for what, what are you going to give to First Covenant in 2020, whether time, it's money, it's whatever, ministry opportunities, any of that, and you're the only one who's going to see it. I'm not going to see it. Leadership's not going to see it. Nobody else around you is going to see it. You're the only one that's going to see it. So you can make that pledge before you and God of how am I going to be involved. Maybe it's the same. Maybe it changes. That's okay. But we'll take the time to actually make that commitment next week. And the other thing that we'll do then in two weeks is we're going to start something uh, for our new covenant church in Lincoln, Beacon Covenant, that's forming. We have, thank you, we have... Uh, we have an opportunity. We, as leadership, were challenged what are we as a church going to contribute to Beacon Covenant uh, in 2020. And $3,000 was what was suggested. We believed we could do that. It turns out that we have a matching grant right now of $1,500. And we believe that we can raise the other $1,500 of that uh, between uh, November 24th and December 15th, a four-week period of time. Kath, Pastor Kath will preach at the end of that time. Um, and we want to take a concerted effort to say, okay, for our 2020 gifting to Beacon Covenant, can we fulfill it before 2020 even comes? And I'll just point out First Covenant Omaha, Soresco Covenant, and Bethlehem Covenant have all done that. And we can do it. So those are the things where we can challenge our generosity coming forward. You can ask the question this week, where's my heart? God or money, 
we can begin to think about how do I direct my heart to be more generous. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, you are a God of abundance. You lavish on us life and many blessings in this life. There's not a day we deserve to live. Each day has been given as a gift. Help us today to make decisions that will empower us to be generous as you are generous. The sacrifice of your son was the ultimate act of generosity. And through the work of Jesus Christ, you've provided salvation, you've given the Holy Spirit, and you make us new. Let us not settle for all our attitudes becoming new, except the one controlling our money and possessions. Be our God in all ways. Amen.